is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Calling New York. Do you read me? Yeah, here I am in the Big Apple. Start spreading the news. Uh, what's the next line? I'm leaving today. Yeah, that's true. I'm struggling a bit now. I want to be a part of it. Correct? Yeah, but I was just going to leave you to <laughs> leave you to sing for a while. I was enjoying it. Uh, how's your holiday been going? Yeah, so I've been having a wonderful holiday and I took a leaf out of your book and I deleted all social media, uh, all email and all news apps off my phone. It's been good, hasn't it? Oh, it's just been wonderful. And then, you know, I reinstalled a couple of things last night ready to do the podcast today and we should explain that we're recording this on wednesday so yeah. who knows what will have happened uh, yeah. since then but just the the onslaught you know turning the pipe back on and seeing what's been going on it's it's unbelievable so how are things that end well it's all been pretty quiet as you can see <laughs> nothing nothing much going on the news is quite boring well I t- i'll tell you what completely passed me by is the United Nations General Assembly being on at the same time as I'm in New York? I thought that's why you were there. I thought you were going to give a long rambling speech about the Jeffocracy to the United Nations. <laughs> I assume that's why you timed it for the Unger meetings. No, no. I've been operating under false pretenses. <laughs> I was hoping that Donald Trump was going to uh, describe me as a happy young man looking forward to a bright future. I mean, honestly, your speech would have been much more rational than Boris Johnson's kind of completely bizarre speech <laughs> that he made. I don't know whether you saw it about artificial intelligence. It was completely off the wall. Fortunately, due to my news blackout, I haven't seen that yet. But uh, there's something to look forward to. So while you've been away, I've been at the Labour Party conference. Yes. It went smoothly and without incident. Nothing much happened. But the, 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 the high point was the annual quiz that I do. Uh, so I do this quiz at this event called The World Transformed. Even you will admit that that was the high point of the Even Labour I will admit conference. that that was the high point. It was what it was what the, the kind of grateful conference going public were, were desperate for. I've actually got a question for you um, okay. from my quiz. And it's a sort of musical question. Because there were, this actually was in the history round. There was a musical round. But the, the question is as follows. In the song The Socialist ABC, which I'm sure you know well... Um, it's called The Time Has Come, My Bonnie Bonnie Band, to learn your socialist ABC. What does A stand for? Is is it A? A is for old granddad Atlee, the greatest man in our land. B, A is for Armageddon that nuclear war will bring. C, A is for American imperialism that threatens the workers of the world. Or is it D, A is for alienation that made me the man that I am? I mean, what is great about this is that presumably you have written three of those options. I have, exactly. And they're very good, Ed. Uh, isn't it A is for alienation that made me the man yes! that I am? Yes, how did you know? It's just one of those, you know, it's it's one of those ones. I'm not great on lyrics a lot of the time, but that one, it's ingrained on my brain. Then, of course, B for the boss who's a bastard. Yes. The bourgeois who doesn't give a damn. Honestly, uh, I look C at you in a totally new... The boss's reactionary creed. D is for dictatorship. Laddie, the best proletarian breed. Not for the first time, Jeff Lloyd, you have left me dumbstruck with your <laughs> extraordinary musical socialist knowledge 
and my ability to Google when I'm not in the same room with you, you can't tell that I'm doing that. <laughs> you have, I tell you, it's not it's not B that's for the, the bastard, frankly. Uh, so we need you back. Honestly, the, the, the Jeffocracy's time has come, I think. I think you probably have an even less benign view of Parliament than Boris Johnson, but but nevertheless, I think we'll we'll take the we'll take the Jeffocracy over the Borisocracy any day. What are we talking about this week? So this week, while they go short term, we go long term, Jeff. So this week, we're talking about how to protect the needs of future generations in policy making. People often criticise our political system for being short termist, and who can be surprised? Both because of politicians' focus on upcoming elections and the lack of bandwidth in government. That means we're storing up all kinds of issues for younger people and those who haven't been born yet, particularly the impact of the climate emergency. A number of countries are experimenting with ways to represent future generations in the political process. Wales is actually leading the way on this. In 2016, they appointed their first future generations commissioner, who is responsible for ensuring that public bodies in Wales take a long-term view. And we're going to be talking to Wales's commissioner, Sophie Howe, about her role and what the rest of the UK can learn from it. Then we'll be joined by Laurie Laybourne Langton from IPPR, who recently wrote a report proposing a UK-wide Future Generations Act, and Andrea Westall, a policy expert who's been looking at these issues for a number of years. And then uh, we we are going to be talking to a good friend of yours, and I think inherently that makes him a cheerful person. But basically, we've got somebody to explain what the hell is is going on constitutionally. And of course, you can refer to our previous episode on the Constitution, but just to kind of unpack and explain and talk about sort of the, the potential ramifications of this Supreme Court judgment this week, uh, we're going to be joined by charlie faulkner yep exactly maybe he can advise you on how the jeffocracy can obey the rule of law <laughs> what's your reason to be cheerful jeff i'll tell you what my reason to be cheerful is go on it's the london underground interesting go on like whenever i come to new york i'm just reminded of what a great mass transit system the underground is compared to the subway system over here i lived for a time in new york in the late 1980s and of course in london the underground was pretty rubbish then but i think you're right certainly since the 90 late 80s it doesn't seem like the new york subway has been updated and in fact there's been quite a sort of scandal hasn't it in new york uh, with the governor, the mayor, sort of fighting it out as to who's responsible for the rubbish subway. And it, it, it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, whenever I come to New York, I really love it here. My wife lived here for a long time. And I think, oh, I could, I could live in New York in a heartbeat. And then I will go on the subway and just be reminded of how much I value the, uh, the London Underground. What's your reason to be cheerful? When I was uh, in Canada this summer, somebody mentioned to me this documentary on Netflix uh, about AlphaGo. You know, which is that computer that was built to to win the ancient Chinese game of Go by by Google DeepMind. Anyway, I watched this documentary, and we persuaded our kids to watch it. Honestly, I really strongly recommend this documentary, and and I persuaded Justine to watch it, and she, you know, she doesn't really she wasn't she was skeptical, and it was absolutely <laughs> gripping because it's about sort of you know humans versus the machine. It's about it's about this South Korean champion who plays the AlphaGo machine. Uh, he's very confident in advance. He's going to win. I don't want to give it away. But it's about how the story unfolds, what it says about human existence. It's called AlphaGo. If you want to sort of get away from Brexit and general chaos, I'd strongly, strongly recommend it. How do you think that machine would have fared in your quiz? It might have done nearly as well as you. <laughs> 
listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined now on the line by Sophie Howe, who is the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, to talk about her role and how we can reflect the importance of future generations in decision making. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us, first of all, what your job involved, what what, what it means and, and what it involves. So my job was created through a law that was passed in the Welsh Assembly called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And my job description as set out in law is to act as the guardian of the interests of future generations. So that's a pretty cool job description, um, I think. But my job is to make sure that the government and all of our other public institutions, so councils, health boards and so on, are, are applying the law and are taking the interests of future generations into account. And how did your role actually, before we talk about the impact you've had, how did your role actually come about? When we had devolution in 1999 in Wales, there was this concept in the Government of Wales Act, which was that sustainable development should be a, um, a central organising principle. And you probably know that, you know, there are often these kind of clauses written in legislation that have warm words and meanings, but they don't actually translate into any action. So I guess there was a frustration by the Labour government at the time and one particular minister that really this just meant kind of annual reporting from the Environment Department about what was happening on sustainable development, but wasn't something that was seen as a really kind of cross-cutting issue of importance across government. So she wanted to legislate to make sure that that was no longer going to be the case and that we really recognise these kind of connections between social, economic, environmental and in Wales we've got this addition of cultural well-being so that planning in a sustainable way, making sure and delivering services in a sustainable way and making sure that, um, you know, the way in which we take decisions today don't compromise, uh, you know, how future generations can live their lives was something that every department across government and every part of the public service in Wales had to take account. And and am I right in thinking that before your post was set up, there was kind of quite a lot of dialogue between generations? Is that right? Yes. So we held a a national conversation in Wales, which engaged with over 10,000 people about the Wales we want and um, a whole range of different generations. So young people from the Scouts and the um, the Irth, which is the Welsh language uh, youth movement, to the Women's Institute and Young Farmers and so on, all held this national conversation, trying to envisage what would we want Wales to look like in the future and what sort of Wales do we want to leave behind to our children, our grandchildren? And they developed, that conversation developed a set of national wellbeing goals, which also took account of the UN Sustainable Development Goals going through at the same time. And I suppose what's really interesting for our listeners is what practical impact your role has had. And there there are some notable areas of policy where you've intervened and it has had a real impact. Isn't that right? Yeah. So one of the the best examples was that there'd been a proposal on the books, if you like, of the Welsh Government for about the last decade to deal with a big problem with congestion on our main motorway, the M4, around Newport by building a, a relief road. And this was interesting for a number of reasons. One, because it was the first time that Wales had got borrowing powers and they were proposing to use all of the borrowing powers on building this road. So that's kind of interesting from a future generations perspective because not only is it potentially questionable whether we should be building, you know, investing our resources on building roads 
at the moment. You're also then proposing to ask future generations to pay it back because it's borrowing. But the, I guess the case that I put was that to challenge the government to demonstrate how investing that amount of money was in the interests of, of future generations, taking into account each one of our goals. So taking into account our carbon emissions targets, taking into account um, future trends and scenarios, whether we'd adequately thought about the potential impact of driverless and autonomous vehicles on congestion there, whether we talked about or they thought about uh, road taxation systems when we all go electric. So to cut a long story short, the issue went to a public inquiry. It was a decision then that needed to be made by the First Minister. The public inquiry recommended that it should go ahead, but the First Minister of Wales rejected that proposal. So that was quite a significant change in policy as a result of the legislation that we've got and I suppose the intervention of, the, of myself as Commissioner. And do you feel that you have enough of a framework to be the representative is it and and tell me if this is the right way of describing it of is it of people who are going to be you know who are children now who are going to be born in 10 years mm-hmm. time 20 years time how do you think about your role in that respect well the legislation talks about a generation as being about 25 years so Actually, it covers everyone who's around at the moment, because what we do at the moment, say, for example, in terms of whether we continue to invest in a health service, which is kind of really at the acute end of services. So we step in when you get ill. Um, What will that mean to um, our younger generations at the moment when they become older generations, when they might be in need of care and when the sheer number of them makes the current model that we're operating completely unsustainable? So it's about those people coming behind us, whatever um, their age might be. And of course, it is about the unborn as well. And so how challenging is it to represent current generations, future generations who are alive today and future generations not yet born? How much of a balancing act is that? Well, it can be a balancing act. I think the climate emergency and the climate strikes are a really good example of that, where effectively we as you know a set of current generations have not done the right things to protect the interests of future generations. Um, you know, we have this huge existential threat of, you know, 12 or 11 years to uh, to save the planet. So I think that there are some massive challenges there. And quite rightly, our future generations, our young people are kind of calling us out. And they're calling us out also on behalf of those who are who are yet to be born. And I think that that's absolutely right. But what I also think is important with the Future Generations Act is that it's not all about this conflict between the two generations, current generations and future generations. There are many things that we could be doing now which will generate kind of multiple wins. So things like if we build low-carbon homes now, that's really good in terms of our carbon emissions and that's important for future generations. But it's also um, really good for current generations because it means their heating bills are going to be less and we'll be tackling the thousands of people who live in fuel poverty. And it means less of them will be in our hospitals during the winter months and so on. So what our act is all about, and this is why these seven wellbeing goals that we've got all work together, is it's about trying to find those things that are going to have multiple wins across all of our goals and benefit both current and future generations. And what do you think the rest of the UK should learn from Wales's innovation? 
Well, Wales is still the only country in the world that has this legislation to protect the interests of future generations. We've got the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals, but if you follow any of the reporting that goes on at the UN, you will see that there's still a frustration about the scale and pace at which those goals are being implemented. So I really think that Wales has got a framework to offer to the rest of the world in terms of how that can be done. Um, I think it's really important that there's an independent accountability mechanism. And, you know, in our case, that's the form of a of a commissioner. And I'm really excited that um, in the next few weeks, there's um, going to be a private members bill in, um, in Parliament launched. Uh, Lord John Bird, who's the founder of The Big Issue, is sponsoring that, calling for a Future Generations Act at a UK level. Um, and I think that certainly if we look at what's going on in the current climate, I don't think anyone could argue that there's a need for us to be better considering the interests of future generations. And if I can tempt you sort of beyond uh, the current setup in Wales, do you feel you could have more teeth? Are there ways that if you had carte blanche, you would you would sort of even improve further the role that you play? Well, I don't have the powers to force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. And, you know, you have to question, I'm not elected, you know, is that the role of politicians to do? Yes, probably. But I always say that this legislation you know, it is legislation, you do need to comply with it, but actually it's the biggest cultural change programme that Wales will have ever seen if we get it right. And cultural change takes a long time and you can't just do cultural change on the basis of some sort of compliance type approach. You've got to win the hearts and minds of people and that takes everyone pulling together and it takes a lot of effort from government, from myself and from others. But I genuinely believe that we're building that movement in Wales. Even the private sector who aren't covered by the legislation are signing up to adopting it in their droves. Okay, Sophie Howe, Wales is leading the way. I think we can fairly say thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're joined now by Laurie Laybourne Langton, who is Associate Fellow at the IPPR and was the lead author of a recent report proposing a UK Future Generations Act, and Andrea Westall, who's Policy Consultant and Trustee of the Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development. Thank you both for joining us. Lovely to be here. Let's start by asking this question, which is, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Why do our political institutions promote short-termism and and what impact uh, does this have on policy? Proof of that short-termism is all around us and the uh, main thing that we're looking at at IPPR in this context is what's happening with the environment, which is almost the purest expression of how we're thinking too much in the short-term and trashing the environment for people today as well as tomorrow. We think there are a number of reasons for this. There's the inherent uncertainty of the future. We don't necessarily know what it's going to look like. There is our potential innate preference for today over tomorrow. And then, of course, there are the competing interests that exist in our societies, people who are more interested in favouring ideas or projects or things that governments put money in that benefit them here now instead of in the future. Andrea? Yeah, so I'll, I'll add to that. Now, the reason why we're getting the short-termism, in addition to what Laurie said, is also the pressure of electoral cycles, which means that policymakers and politicians are responsive to what they think is going to work with the electorate. And also there's a speed to get things done in a period of time, which sometimes is not going to be good for trying to tackle complex issues. These are difficult ones. And the way that we're structured at the moment is within quite simple silos within government. So you can have the Department for Work and Pensions as an example. 
And that often means, I mean, as you will know from policy wonk days, that that means that you focus purely on that one issue and you ignore all of the other impacts, never mind in the future, but also also in the present as well. Do you think it's a particular character of today's issues or other tomorrow's issues that we're going to face, which wouldn't have been so relevant sort of 30 years ago? In other words, is this future generation's perspective even more important because of the issues we face now? Or has this always been a problem? Well, I think it's always been a problem. There's always that element of people being concerned about what's coming round the corner. The difference now, for me in particular, is the environmental, that we have been given this unique window into the future, almost in a way that presumably has never happened in the, in, in the past, where a, a whole set of generations from the millennial generation down have basically been told by the global scientific community that we're headed towards this future of unprecedented instability. And leaders have not responded, as we were reminded time and time again by Greta Thunberg and the other school strikers. So I think that that's a particularly unique thing about the about intergenerational issues that we're facing at the moment. I mean, I think also to add to that, um, there's an issue about the speed at which we need to react as well. So that I think before there was a sense, I mean, it's always the problem of economists. Economists always make these things more difficult than they should be. So it used to be the idea that you developed first and then you cleaned up later. And I think China's very quickly realising that that's not the way to go and is having to kind of bypass what was seen as being this inevitable law that everybody followed. Well, it wasn't a law and um, uh, we can't follow it. But it is that issue of speed. And I think we know now that we've got these emergencies coming a lot more quickly than we thought. And the short termism, it's not just short termism, it's our ability to be able to respond quickly. We don't. And how are we going to do that? And, and Laurie, can you talk to us a bit about this phrase toxic inheritance that you use in your report, uh, the toxic inheritance of environmental breakdown? How do you define this? And can you talk a bit about the impact it will have on future generations? Sure. So to define environmental breakdown first, the sadly... Uh, as we're beginning to develop a better understanding of this isn't just a climate bomb. We're also depleting soils. We're uh, forcing species into extinction at an unprecedented rate. Now, the environment's becoming more destabilized, and that's increasingly impacting human society, right? So we've got storms. We've got more instances of, of, of food production being impaired or experiencing shocks. And that is getting worse because we're still destroying the environment. So for us, the toxic inheritance isn't just the enormous burden placed upon younger generations of having to sort all this out as quickly as possible. It's also the fact that they are being left exposed to a world that's going to be much more destabilised than it is now. And Andrea, beyond the climate and the environment, what are the other issues affecting future generations that we're currently failing to address? Well, I'm just going to add one to the environment, which is resources. Because in addition to a lot of the um, problems that are going to arise for environmental degradation, the depletion of resources could become hugely problematic. For example, if you look at something like rare earth metals, if they become used in the way they're still used and they're limited, the price of these will rise, will start to get issues around protectionism, war, even more so than, than we have now. But I think alongside that, if, for example, antibiotic resistance fails you know, quite quickly and there is some, some major diseases to deal with, then there could be something that is going to destabilise a lot. So that's one. And then issues around bioengineering, artificial intelligence, robotics. It's about ensuring that these work with 
what people want, not against. Well, let, let's move on to an idea to feel optimistic about. Uh, Laurie, you <laughs> propose a, a future... I mean, it sounds so dystopian, but there is something to be optimistic about here. Uh, you, it's the idea, and you propose a, a Future Generations Act for the UK. And can you tell us what this would mean in practice and, and how it would overcome uh, some of these problems? Thanks to the concerted work of campaigners over decades, over generations, we enjoy in this country and around the world certain rights, certain human rights, for example, like right to education, right to certain opinions, right to, to life, right to, to family and a private life. They're enshrined through the Human Rights Act in this country, and it took a long time for us to get to that point. What we're arguing is we go a step further and we also begin to provide rights to future generations uh, to uh, to be able to enjoy a stable environment. I mean, that's the lens that we come from it, but you can, you can uh, think of this in terms of other uh, future issues that we've been talking about. So it means a fundamental change where in law you enshrine the rights to certain things for those future generations. So what we would like to happen is that you would pass a law that enshrines that in practice, and you have a number of institutions, bits of government that make sure that that occurs. So we're talking about a way that you could do this would be to have an office for future generations that would then work in government and make sure ministers and others are doing impact assessments to make sure they're thinking through what the impact will be on future generations. That would then be informed by a commission for with commissioners. So this is building on the model of what happens in Wales already with the future generations commissioners who've been doing absolutely fantastic work in making sure that we all think about those rights. We think that should be built out across across the rest of the United Kingdom and in particular with regional commissioners to make sure we've got that local lens on what's being done. And then that there will be a select committee in Parliament. So Parliament can then have scrutiny over how all of this apparatus of a Future Generations Act is working within and across government. Yeah, I, I agree with Laurie about uh, needing to have some kind of institution um, such as the, the Welsh office. I think that at the same time, there are so many developing institutions around the world that we can we can learn from the best because each one has got its own pros and cons. And I think if Wales was starting the blank sheet of paper, they might not necessarily have done all the things they've done now. They might have done them better. And the thing I think that is really important is how much teeth do they have? If you look at all of these different models around the world, some of them can suggest legislation, they scrutinise it. There was an example where they could actually veto it, but amazingly that doesn't exist. That probably went too far. Where was that? That was in Israel. Right. Mm. Um, and there were reasons why that failed, but I think the fact that they could veto meant that it was a tricky one because it was taking away parliamentary sovereignty, something which is obviously quite topical at the moment. But having that, that, that teeth to suggest legislation, to scrutinise which in a way suggests we're not talking about one institution. We're talking about a whole set of reforms that permeate through the entire political process and through democracy. So at the same time as having something like the Welsh uh, Commissioner and all of the roles that they have vis-a-vis the public sector, you could have, and, and you mentioned it, you know, a joint select committee, which is able then to scrutinise legislation, to suggest amendments, to hold, in a sense, that space. One of the problems at the moment is that there is so much talk about all of these institutions around the world, whether it's the Finnish Council for the Future, all sorts of different activities that are going on. The problem is it's not actually easy to find out what's working and why. What we do know is that the worst thing you can do is to make it about one person. So in the past, we had the Hungarian Ombudsman for Future Generations, and because it became political... It, it sort of changed the nature of, of what was going on and made it a less effective role. The same thing if you just have one single commissioner and the same thing happened in Israel where, again, the the idea of future generations was embodied within one person and that became political and, and 
didn't quite work with the, with the government at the time. But also it's about more than just an institution. It's about looking right across um, the spectrum of things that need to change. And often these things come from constitutions. If a constitution embodies within it something which then requires you to look at future generations, Wales does, it has sustainable development in. Uh, and all the new constitutions all include future generations in one form or another. What about the question of teeth, Laurie? How does it have teeth, this 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 idea, and how does it not just become a sort of commission that reports and the you know report gathers, is ignored by government and so on? In having an office of future generations that government, they would have to do impact assessments that are really feeding into how decisions are being made. We think doing impact assessments, so people have to you know, look at those things already, as you all know, ministers have to you know, consider all sorts of things when they're making decisions. If you increase it to include this explicitly... So how's it going to look from 20 years' time, 30 years' time, 40 years' time? Exactly, the rights of those generations coming Which doesn't through. happen at the moment. Precisely, which is extraordinary. And... You also suggest in your report, Laurie, that we should change what they call the discount rate in policymaking. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain to our listeners what the discount rate is and why it needs to change? In the Treasury, where uh, decisions are made about how uh, and uh, how much money is spent and what it's spent on, there are a number of, of models, uh, things that are used to inform people's decision making. In the same way that, you know, at home you've got certain things that you use to decide where you should be spending your money on and how much you're spending on. The discount rate provides a tool, a mathematical tool, in which people within the Treasury can make a decision about what they should be doing now with a bit of an idea about what happens in the future. So that is a, a, a number that factors in all sorts of things like how the future is uncertain so we don't necessarily know how it's going to plan out but also crucially how much we ethically we care about future generations compared to ones now and that's a very important distinction uh, and also how much we think they're going to be wealthier in the future so we're, we're saying hang on a minute we don't think this number is quite right because so it basically of- means you care i mean it sounds pretty brutal but it, it, embedded in the treasury's model is that sort of decisions that we make now we sort of when we think about their impact on the future we discount their importance in the future we discount the impact on future generations so in a sense you you sort of care less about the impact on future generations than now correct precisely yeah now uh, there's always been a, a healthy rigorous debate around this um we're saying that um we need to bring that rate down we need to care a bit more about people in the future and one way of also illustrating this is that the nick stern report uh of the 2000s said that the costs of not acting on climate change were greater than the costs of acting. In other words, it made financial sense to act now, but he assumed a lower discount rate. In other words, he assumed that the impact uh, of not acting in the future was greater than the current Treasury models would assume. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly that. So we're saying it needs to come down to something around what Nick Stern was saying, which then makes you uh, understand precisely what you said, which is that yeah, if if you if you're going to live for one day, it makes sense to do loads of things that will just impact you on that one day. If you're living for more than one day, you need to make decisions that that. So future generations should matter more. Is the short, is the is the shorthand <laughs> on this complicated piece of uh, arcanery? But people listening to these ideas might think this is all very well, but are we going to sell out the needs of current generations by caring about the future? And also, relatedly. Um, isn't there just massive uncertainty about where things are going to be in 10, 20, 30 years' time? And so can you really get a handle on these things? How, how would you react to that, Andrea? Yeah, so I'm, I'm smiling because um, I chatted to somebody who was involved in The Future We Want, which was the discussion Wales had 
before it um, brought the um, Future Generations Act in. And it was all about language. And they said, um, you know, so what do you think about future generations? And the youngest people there said, um, we don't really like it because that's not about us. That's about these people in the future. You know, what about us? What, what's it going to mean for us? So that that was already coming through, even in the words that, that, that you use. Otherwise, this does become something which looks like a trade-off. There is no necessity. We know that environmental problems are, are, are actually starting to impact on people now. This isn't a future, just purely a, fu- a future thing. I mean, we seem to have also forgotten this little phrase, the precautionary principle. In other right. words, you don't act if, you, if you're not sure what's going to happen because the, you know, the, what comes out of doing that could be, could be far worse than, than, than you think. So we've got a thing on the uh, podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is where Jeff is the uh, sort of supreme benign ruler. He assures me that he would obey the rule of law, which is obviously which is obviously relevant uh, this week. He'd, he'd obey the judgments of the Supreme Court. Um, but if you were ba- both made the sort of ministers for future generations in the Jeffocracy, what's what's the what's the first thing you do? Je- Jeff ha- would be a very hands off ruler, I think. So you'd have pretty much a a blank check. What what would you what would you be telling him we've got to do? Well, I still don't think we can get anywhere unless we sort our short term mess out because I don't think you know there'll be room to do it. So the thing that I would do is uh, get a conversation like the future we want for the whole of the UK around geographies and, and for different people. So the future we want was a conversation that Wales did before the Future Generations Act, which engaged people of different groups in different areas and said, right, okay, what are your what are the key things you think should be part of a future Wales? And they came up with seven and amazingly they mapped onto the SDGs virtually perfectly. The sustainable development give goals. Or take. Yeah. Yeah. Laurie? So the report we've written is full with great ideas, as you can expect. And <laughs> yeah, they need to be downloaded from the IPPR yeah, website. Exactly. And you should go there right now, and uh, you don't need to wait to the future to read it. And the the like, allowing 16, 17 years old to vote is another one in there, reducing the discount rate, future generation, that they should all happen. But I'm going to agree with this point as well. There needs to be this nationwide conversation between generations. I think that is most important because the implicit deal between generations that older generations at least won't completely trust the future in the minds of younger generations is or has broken down. But if you flip that round, those generations desperately need the help of those who are older than them to point out mistakes that were made in the past, to provide them with advice, to repair those links within people. Now, the way you do that with the, through citizens' assemblies or some other the big ideas at the moment um, is up for debate. But that conversation absolutely needs to happen because it's together that we need to face the problems of today as well as those of the future. And do you feel optimistic? Is this is this the rising... The rising tide of the younger generation makes these ideas on the table. I mean, I feel like enormously optimistic. I probably have to feel optimistic because I'm going to be alive for another 50, 60 years. I also feel optimistic because the people who are my age or younger, I think they're enormously dedicated, they're competent, and they want to fight not just to try and stop us sliding into the sort of uh, the, the doom that we feel uh, at the moment, but, but to try and build a better world, a genuinely better world in the process. I think it's also about the kinds of, of things that you do with your life as well. So if I look at, at sort of my generation, people aspire to go into management consultancy, they're inspired to go into, into finance. But when you think about all of the exciting things now in material science, in bioengineering, in all of those things where you can be creative and you can use all your skills, but you're also creating benefits for the planet and, 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 and the future, you know, it's remarkable. I'd, I'd love to be doing stuff like that now, really would. Okay. 
Andrea and Laurie, you've made us more optimistic. <laughs> Thanks. And you've got the job. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. A pleasure. Well, I found all that very interesting. I was sort of curious to ask you about, in your experience in government, how much thought is given to this kind of long-termism, planning for things, sort of 10, 15 years, maybe more in the future when, you know, it's not only a different party in government, but, you know, an entire sort of different set of uh, circumstances that a country faces. I think it is incredibly difficult to think beyond the next, you know, the, the, the electoral cycle. I think it was incredibly difficult, even in the sort of 2000s, partly because of uncertainty, partly because politicians are focused on the sort of here and now. And then, and, and, and when it comes to issues, when it used to come to issues like pensions, eventually we did get to some kind of settlement on pensions through a sort of independent commission led by Adair Turner. But it was really hard to, to think beyond and in a sort of, you know, cross party way about things that would go beyond the lifetime of a government. And that's sort of a truism. But I think what really struck me about this conversation is we are at a unique moment when these this policy idea I think is particularly important because the 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 kind of sense about what's going to – of course there's uncertainty around the nature of climate breakdown, but it's not like it's speculation like about robotics or AI. It's kind of – we have a pretty strong sense of where things are heading and the dangers we face if we don't think about the kind of 20, 30-year view. And we also know that there is a kind of real difficulty in getting politicians not to think about, well, what do we do in the next five years, uh, as opposed on this issue, as opposed to thinking, what is where are we going to be in 20 or 30 years' time? So it feels like a, a kind of idea whose time has really come. And I, and I am struck by the experience of Wales where it feels like it's making a difference. I guess the challenge is how do you give this teeth? How do you give it actual bite in government? So it isn't just like a report that gets ignored by government. And I think thinking through how you kind of institutionally have this to have real effect, I think is in a way part of the task now, now that we've sort of heard more about the idea. And, there, and there's obviously some interesting thoughts in the conversation about how we can make that happen. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As ever, we would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, if, if you have an idea on how we can change the world, change the system to build in future generations, or if you've spotted potential flaws in what's been talked about, or if you've just got ideas in general for what we should be talking about on the podcast, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast, or find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Now, uh, this, this is great. We got an email from Thomas Ware on the subject of the uh, the honour system in the Jeffocracy, oh, which we were yes. talking about. We were asking for suggestions. Yes. Uh, he, he starts by saying, you'll need to have a peerage so that some people can become Jeff Barons. Yes. That's a, re- that's a, is, that a um, is that a reference to, to your wife? It's, well, it's a nod to my middle, my middle yep. name, which I changed by Depole. Remember, you became quite obsessed yep. with that for a while. You should be called Baron um, Jeff Lloyd, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then something like Order of the Jeffocracy. You've got a Mogo, which is a member of the Order of the Jeffocracy. Yeah. An Ogo. Yeah. An officer of the Order. A yeah. Kogo, commander of the Order. Uh, uh, Kogo, knight of the Order of the Jeffocracy. And the, um, uh, uh, I don't know if I can say this as an acronym. Um, KGCGO. Yeah, I was going to try and pronounce it like 
Kukshiko doesn't yeah. quite work, does it? Yeah. And and then we've got the most honourable order of chaos with Ed Miliband. So you've got SCE, supporter of the chaos with Ed. Uh, OCE, I'm officer of the this. chaos. CCE, coordinator of the chaos. Uh, ACE, arbiter of the chaos with Ed. Um, KCCE, knight commander of the chaos with Ed. And SSKCE, strong and stable knight of the I'm, chaos I'm, with Ed. I, I'm loving this. Thomas's subject line for the email, by the way, was good too. It said, knight grand cross of the order of the bacon roll. Oh, well, maybe that's only for... KGBR. For, maybe that's only for special, special people. <laughs> We've also had some action on Twitter in relation to uh, the episode on childcare. Um... Rachel Hughes says, I love cheerful podcasts. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, the topics are showing good practice debate. Please, 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 though, don't say UK when your guest talking about England. This is a fair point. Uh, similarly, when you say government, please differentiate between the different governments. Many of the topics of policy areas are devolved, childcare education, etc. And the recent music education episode could have referenced major curriculum reforms taking place in Wales. We also have world-leading legislation in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. This is instant action that you get from us, Rachel. Your tweet, our episode. And then Hannah Stevens says, I don't know if you can buy them, but I make dark rye sourdough crumpets, and they're delicious. Oh. Ooh. Well, I don't, well I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I like that noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you found it a bit disturbing. Yeah, a little bit disturbing. Okay. Um, all right, this comes from Pat Drake. It's about our last but one episode on democracy and reinvigorating it and getting people to vote and engage. I so agree with this episode in particular, though I like them all. I've just returned from seven years in Australia where I gained citizenship, so I'm a dual, and I was shocked to rediscover the state of affairs here. There's an active effort in Australia to get people to vote. It's compulsory, and at the same time, people are positively welcomed into the plebiscite celebrations at schools and in youth groups, online voter registrations supplemented by opportunities for people to register in groups and at events, etc. Elections are on Saturdays and are very sociable. Uh, see, that would put me off, a sociable election. Um, and the, the voting papers themselves are sophisticated. Citizens aren't treated like idiots. Um, he says it was so great to hear this subject opened up. He adds, it's Tuesday morning, I'm a baby boomer, uh, approaching full-blown ancienthood. I'll do my best in getting someone else to register. As for Jeff's honour, cheerful person is an excellent start. Uh, they could be on the podcast like Anna or in the world being cheerful or digitally active cheerful. Great. Maybe we could do that on social media, you know, like part of the honours system could be that, we, you know, like sort of like an employee of the month where you get your picture up on the uh, the notice board, we could do that where we fi- find cheerful people and put them up on our social media. Hmm, good idea. I'm also thinking right in saying that you were a guest of the week once at a, a famous hotel in Salford, aren't, weren't you? A bit like that. Exactly like that, yeah, yeah. That's probably what's in, in, inspired and informed. The was suggestion. it guest of the day or guest of the week? It was guest of the day, but yeah, right. it, Please don't belittle my my accomplishments. You're my guest of the week. Thank you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Now, it has been, Jeff, as you will have noticed, a hugely significant week this week in relation to the courts and the law and its relationship to parliament and politics. And who better to come in and talk about it than cheerful Charlie Faulkner, <laughs> former Lord Chancellor, and the Supreme Court was his baby. 
Wasn't it, Charlie? That's absolutely right. Do you not remember? It was one of the things on the back of the fag packet. You made it up on the back of the fag packet. (laughs) And what was on the back of the fag packet has now become genuinely one of the great pillars of our constitution, both physically and in the terms of what it can do. Just because people will be intrigued by this, when you say back of a fag packet, it was sort of announced, it was just remind us for pe- for our, our listeners, it was sort of announced all in a hurry and it was all it, a bit of a sort of haulix, was in it? The, there was a reshuffle going on and in the middle of the reshuffle, the Prime Minister announced, oh, by the way, I'm changing the role of the Lord Chancellor, changing the way we appoint judges, abolishing the law lords as the final court of appeal and, and creating a Supreme Court. That was all in the announcement and the appointing you as the and appointing me as the new Lord Chancellor but only on the basis I was going to as it were finish myself off in the process and that was was that your idea or his idea it was I don't think it was it wasn't my idea that we should finish off uh, the Lord Chancellor but it was my idea that we should do the Lord the, the new way of appointing judges and my idea we should have a Supreme Court which is independently appointed judges exactly so you couldn't you wouldn't just have a political appointment doing it and it used to be a political appointment well, it used to be done by the Lord Chancellor who was somebody he was politically appointed, but not on a political right. basis. And so your reform was what? To have My a Supreme reform, Court? First of all, to have a Supreme Court, not the... It's, it's quite wrong as a matter of principle to have the final Court of Appeal as a, a committee of the legislature. The way that we were appointing the, uh, the final Court of Appeal was to appoint you to the House of Lords, which is the legislature, which is completely wrong. Instead, instead of being appointed to the legislature, appoint you to the Supreme Court, which is what we did. But it's not a Supreme Court. So Lady Hale, who is the who's the chair of the Supreme Court, doesn't sit in the House of Lords, whereas previously she would have done. Now, as a sort of, you know, legal eagle of the highest renowned, what did you think of the judgment? I thought it was a spectacular judgment. It was unexpected because the traditional and conventional view, which is very much reflected in the court below in England, is that the basis on which you prorogue is political and you don't get involved in politics in the court. But what the Supreme Court did was to analyse it and say, well, it's a prerogative power to prorogue. If the effect of the prerogative power being exercised is to stop Parliament functioning, and that's what happened here, they concluded, then it's done unlawfully and the courts will intervene. The reason why it's so new and so spectacular is no Prime Minister in modern times, had ever pushed uh, the extent of this prerogative power to prorogue to the limits that Boris Johnson had done. And in a sense, what the court was faced with was, do we just accept its political and hope in the years to come that Parliament will pass an act to Parliament saying you can't prorogue except with the permission of Parliament, or did they intervene? And they rightly decided to intervene. Now, how much of this do you think has happened because of the sort of egregious behaviour of Boris Johnson, and how much of it is because of your reforms to the court and the sort of more judicial sort of muscularity? I mean, I think I'm right in saying that in 1997, John Major prorogued Parliament for quite a long period before the forthcoming general election. I mean, do you think a decision like this would have happened? Is it purely because of Boris Johnson? Or is it also because of the reforms and the way the court has changed its view of things? It's a combination of things, but it is primarily the way that Boris Johnson has acted. I don't know how a judicial committee of the House of Lords, which would have been the equivalent, would have dealt with it in 1997. But the effect of the Supreme Court being in a building across the road from Parliament, separate identifiable as the final court of appeal, the last bastion against an overmighty prime minister 
basically saying every time the Commons gets too tricky, I'll simply prorogue Parliament. And I think it's a combination of both. I doubt whether or not in 1997 anyone would have been as egregious as Boris Johnson, but equally I doubt that the final Court of Appeal would have been as bold as this Supreme Court has been. Is this a part of a pattern of what we've seen in the last decade since your reforms? I mean, in other words, have we we saw it on employment tribunal fees, I think I'm right, saying the government yes. tried to have uh, fees for employment tribunals and somewhat unexpectedly the court struck them down and said you couldn't charge fees. Is that right? It's yeah, exactly right. They, basically, what the, the, there'd been a big issue in which the courts below had looked in fine detail at the terms of an act as to whether it had not allowed very high fees for employment tribunals. The, uh, the 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 Supreme Court swept all that to one side and said, we ask ourselves one question. Is this denying people who are entitled to it access to justice? Yes, it is, because the fees are too high. And access to justice is in the law, is it? No, it's nowhere. It's a principle of our constitution, which has been there. Written so, down where? Written down nowhere. Uh, but everybody would not agree. The, not no, the, in the Convention on Human Rights. Not in the Convention on Human Rights, but everybody would agree that Part of our constitution is that everybody should have access part to justice. Part of the constitution we don't have. Now, I think you and I are going to have what is unusual for us, which is a disagreement at this point. I mean, some people listening to this, probably including me, would think, well, doesn't that absolutely make the case for a written constitution? I mean, the notion that the law, that the judges should sort of simply kind of, you know, impute that there should be access to justice and then strike it down. I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it scream you should have this written down so that we agree as a country what are the principles we want the courts to enforce? Absolutely not. Is this, is this case, the prorogation case, not the absolute vindication of our constitution? The Prime Minister played fast and loose with the constitution and the courts were up to the task of bringing him straight back into the lines of the constitution. Would it have been helped by a written constitution? No, it would not. What would the written constitution have said? You can only prorogue in appropriate circumstances. So it wouldn't have added anything. And what's more, the effect of a written constitution would be to make not parliament, but the judges sovereign and the absolute essence. Only on the basis of what's written down in the constitution and them interpreting that, which is is what's happening anyway, except it's not written down. No, but all all that part, what what the Supreme Court said two days ago, is Parliament is sovereign. We will take Parliament's side to prevent the Prime Minister closing Parliament down. That's what they did. So as against the executive, the um, Supreme Court, the courts have taken the side of Parliament. If you have a document which is above Parliament, then it is the interpretation of the document that then becomes the key thing. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, I, I suppose, the most more soap opery side of it, Charlie. So, like, as we were waiting for the judgment, like, what's it like at your end of the legal community? Do you get any kind of heads up about what might happen? Normally, in a case in the Supreme Court, they will circulate the judgment to the parties, but on a private basis, two or three days before, so that the parties can correct any typographical errors. So, but they didn't do it on this occasion. It was an absolute thriller 
from beginning to end. But no, nobody knew. And it, I mean, it's, it's, it's. But you felt that was that you felt it was sort of coming, didn't you? You felt in your waters. I felt it was coming. And I mean, uh, Jonathan Sumption, the former Supreme Court justice, put it right. He said the conventional wisdom would be that they wouldn't interfere. But there comes a point where a government behaves so badly that the court has just got to intervene. And what would have happened here if the court hadn't intervened is it would have been a license to Boris Johnson to prorogue in the face of any difficulties. Charlie, where where does this go next? I mean, I know that nobody quite knows where it's going next. Do you think the court will be thinking, if one can describe the court as a sort of thinking as a collective, that, you know, there's the Brexit deadline coming up, the letter that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is supposed to send if he doesn't get a deal by a certain uh, date, 19th of October. October. Do you think the court is sort of ready to act? I mean, that that, that feels like that, doesn't it? is Is this not, as it were, the courts of Sweeney Todd sharpening their knife? And if he tries any trick, like, for example, the letter asking for the extension accompanied by another letter saying, I'm speaking here on behalf of the British government, please do not give this extension. Some sort of sort of awful trick like that, then the courts will fall upon him like an absolute ton of bricks. And isn't the message of this decision about prorogation, don't try and get round the law because the judges will not allow it. Give us, uh, to, to, to end with finally, uh, a cheerful thought. A cheerful thought is... Do you not think that our Supreme Court is absolutely the best in the world? In that, you, that, that if this had been an American Supreme Court, they would have simply voted with the party that had appointed them, just as they did when the Gore-Bush battle came along as to who won the election. All the Republicans voted with Bush and all the Democrats voted with Gore and there were more Republicans than, than uh, Democrats. So Bush became the president. On this occasion, despite... Whatever their preceding views were, you knew this lot were deciding on the basis of what they thought was the law. And they were all unanimous. They went for what was in the best interest of the country and what they thought to be the law rather than politics. And that is a terrific compliment to our legal system. Charlie, you must be very proud of your baby all grown up. Very proud of my baby all grown up. And I think you can get real encouragement from the fact that we've got an independent legal system that protects us from governments behaving badly. Charlie Faulkner, you cheered us up. Thanks so much. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, it's time for us to go now, but I'm I'm looking forward to having you back on Terra Firma here. Well, I'll, I'll have to find a little something to bring back for you. Oh, don't worry about that, honestly. I've, I've seen lots of pre-2020 paraphernalia uh, knocking about, you know, sort of Ooh. mugs... And, uh, and and tumblers with different candidates' Ooh, names on them or prospective candidates. I saw a Trump 2020 mug where his kind of quiff, I don't really know what you would call it, um, had been incorporated into the logo in quite an exciting way. I take it you don't want one of those or a bumper sticker. I'm not sort of a big supporter of him, actually, no. Is, is, is there any uh, any of the Democratic um, prospective candidates who you'd like some paraphernalia of? I've been I've been thinking since January that Warren is kind of going to be the candidate, Elizabeth Warren. Okay, I'll, I'll see what I can find for you. That'd be great. I'm off now to get myself something which I'm very excited about: some cereal milk flavored ice cream. Cereal milk. What do you mean cereal milk? Yeah, so you know when you have a bowl of cereal yeah. and then the milk in the bottom tastes of cereal? Yeah. That exists as an ice cream flavour here. I'm afraid this is like the consumer society gone mad. <laughs>
mean, like, we can't solve climate change, but we can make cereal milk ice cream. I'm sorry to be simplistic about it. It's so good. It's so delicious. I mean, just one thing that I wanted to sort of raise with you, which is when you fly back overnight on Friday, are you ready for the sort of sky camera following your motorcade back to back to your house in Stoke Newington <laughs> and just sort of what you're gonna what you're gonna say when you arrive, you know, what you're gonna say on the steps <laughs> about your experience at the UN, how you're gonna sort out the chaos that, that, that the country's in. I just think you need to you just need to get Sarah to prep you on the on the okay. plane for you know what, what it, there's going to be a real sort of media storm that's going to hit you on I'll your I'll watch return. some videos of how Boris handled it and that'll be how not to do it don't underestimate the scrutiny they'll be okay uh, but look it, seriously it'll be very nice to have you back because we've missed you a lot particularly in these troubling times you think had, had I been in the country maybe it would have all played out a bit better I don't think it would have none of, any, I don't think any of it would have happened <laughs> I think it would have been a totally... Look, honestly, it's a sliding doors moment for the country. (laughs) Well, look, I'd like to thank our guests, Laurie Laybourne-Langton and Andrea Westall and Sophie Howe. And thanks to Charlie Faulkner for helping us make some sense of what's going on at the moment. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pearce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our artwork wasn't designed by... Emily Power. But it was, in fact, done by uh, Henry Cole. He's been... Start spreading the news. He's been... I'm leaving today. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.